Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Kenny Holmes and Robert Kraft continuing on with this season three of Score the Podcast. Robert, you with me? I am so with you. I mean, it's a incredible season three. I must, if if I must say so myself, I've really enjoyed this one. Uh, such great talent on the show this this year. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good morning as well to composer Carol. Good morning. Composer Carol, there's I don't hear any construction behind you. Have you asked everyone to stop for this one hour yeah. of score of the podcast? Special request. That's really nice of you. Thank you. I'm excited uh, for your possible um, medley this week. Ooh. Ooh, me too. Yeah, me. I'm always excited and always amazed by the arranging and the playing skills of composer Carol. Oh, thank you. Yep. Looking forward to it. Uh, our guest this week is definitely one of the most unique musician composers we've had on the show and his approach to the art is is just what what would you call it unconventional is probably a good word unconventional but i'd also say supremely artistic how about that nice that's great yep uh we're talking of course about max richter who is an Emmy and Grammy-nominated composer. He has a new album out called Voices, which we can't wait to dive into and talk about with him. Mm -hmm. Um, He's also behind the eight-and-a-half-hour album Sleep, which, uh, if you haven't heard of this, we're going to talk about it with Max a little bit, but um, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's music to sleep to. It's eight-and-a-half hours. He did concerts uh, around the world, and how do you play for eight and a half hours in front of an audience that's trying to go to sleep? It's incredible. Slowly. Um, he, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, he also scored the movie Ed Astra, his most recent big film. And um, the score to that movie is just incredible. There's so much to talk to with Max. So we're excited to get him on the show. We have some uh, entries into score the mailbox that we're going to answer. Uh-oh. Are you ready? I am so ready. No hard questions. No math, please. We actually got two audio messages oh, this week. Cool. So we'll we'll hear the messages themselves mm. read to us, which is pretty cool. Let's hear it. Um, before we get to score the mailbox, though, of course, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers used by many of the guests right here on Score the Podcast. Spitfire has something for everyone. If you're just starting out, they have the completely free range of top quality instruments called Labs. Labs. The new Discovery Edition of the BBC Symphony Orchestra is only 49 bucks, Or you can get it for free by filling out a survey and waiting two weeks. It's a full orchestra at your fingertips, and I, for one, have really been enjoying it. I love it. I got my free copy. I waited two weeks, and it's great. Yeah, I have mine too. And uh, most important to our listeners, the deal. 20% off your first purchase of Spitfire products. And this includes all of their collaboration packages with uh, some big names like Hans Zimmer, Oliver Arnolds, and the London Contemporary Orchestra. There's more than 50 libraries you can use our promo code on, which is SCORE2020, lowercase SCORE2020. 
And again, it's a limited time offer. So when you're checking out at uh, spitfireaudio.com, making your purchase, use that promo code SCORE2020, save 20%, and you can elevate your music. Stick around after today's show. We're going to play you a cue created with one of the uh, Spitfire packages to show you some of the different sounds in their toolkit. So mm-hmm. it's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, all right, let's get to it. We Last week, we had a fully packed show. We had two guests, uh, Jim Johnston and Ludwig Gorenson, which was a lot, a lot to digest, and we didn't have a chance to check the mailbox. So that's a double... That's a double mailbox. The drama is killing me. <laughs> uh, let's get to it. So our first message comes in from Ellen in London. Hi, my name is Ellen and I'm an aspiring film composer from London. My question is, why is the release soundtrack or score for a movie not necessarily the exact cues heard in the film? I've noticed this especially with Hans Zimmer's scores for Inception, Dunkirk and Dark Phoenix. Instead of the cues from the film, the soundtrack is made up of more complete or substantial pieces that overall summarise the music in the film. I'd like to know why this is released instead of the exact cues and just generally why this happens. Ellen, great question. We've, I think we've touched on this a little bit on the show, but maybe not answered it in full. And Robert, you've had a lot of experiences with this. Once the film comes out, if they want to do an album, why has it changed? Well, it's, it is a great question, and it's a very perceptive question, Ellen, because not a lot of people would literally be able to tell the difference. But I'd say the first and overriding answer is a kind of strangely obvious one, though many people don't realize that a soundtrack audio release is different from an experience of music in the theater where you have picture. So you're trying to make the right media for the experience. And what you're doing is, first of all, you got to make a record in the old-fashioned world. So you want the composer, the director doesn't get involved, and the producer doesn't get involved, and the studio doesn't get involved. The composer's making the best record he can of what he just made. So he's going to take his finest example of the original full-on cue to put on the soundtrack album to memorialize the film. The other part of that is when composers turn in their original full-on cues, they then have to step away while the music editor and director and film editor hack away at the stems. And Ellen, I'm going to guess that you understand what I'm saying because your question was sophisticated. So you can imagine that in the version that's in the film, well, do we need all those tambourines on left and right that the composer put in? They're conflicting with the machine guns. Let's, can we lose those? Yeah, so the music editor takes out the tambourines, and then the director says, I really think that melody should go away under the dialogue. By the time it's in the film, it can often be a substantially different cue. So Ellen... I hope that answers your question. It's a great one. If you're someone who notices that, you're probably a big fan who <laughs> is really dialed in. And uh, we know we have a lot of those listening. So thanks for that question, Ellen. All right, we have one more from Anna in England. Hello, it's Anna here from England. Um, I was just wondering, Alexandra Desplat describes how Goldsmith was the godfather of tempo. 
When composing for films, do you start with the tempo or the melody or the instrumentation? Or is it maybe even the structure or harmony? Also, how do you decide the diegetic music for a film? Is it the composer's choice or the music supervisor's or even the director's? Many thanks. Anna sneaking in with two questions in there. Well done. Anna, first of all, are you near Ellen? I just want to know because the British accent is a giveaway that you might be on the same street where a lot of film composers (laughs) live. I'm going to answer both questions. The first one is a famous answer that was asked about songwriting. And Sammy Kahn, who wrote a lot of Frank Sinatra songs, he was asked, which comes first, the music or the lyrics? And he said, the phone call. So... When you're asking what does the composer tackle first, the tempo, the harmony, uh, the melody, I think all of them, yes. I mean, there's uh, Kenny and I were actually talking about your question earlier, and he was reminding me that Junkie XL likes to look at the tempo of a scene first. But I do know yeah. that certain composers have a melody in mind that they try over different parts of the film. The tune, John Powell always talks about finishing the tune and then having to put it up against picture to see if it works in different ways in a different scenes and at different tempos. So I think the answer, and unfortunately to your question may not be much help, which is all of the above. It, it really just depends on styles too. I mean, sometimes you get a script or a book to check out before, and you may come up with a theme in your head that, it's just a melody that that fits to the story. Um, other times you get the picture and there's a really fast scene maybe on on picture and then you write to that. So I think it also depends on how the film or the idea is presented to the composer. Um, but that could that of course could be way different for writing like a song when you don't have anything to put it to. Then the palette is wide open. But if you're writing to media. It it generally would depend on when you were given the idea and how much time you have too. I think, but yeah, there's so many ways to approach it yep. that we've learned right here on the show, actually. And I think the other answer to your question is actually presented within the question itself, which is sometimes you have to try all of those approaches just to find out what the cue is. Okay, I don't know what to write here. Um, let me try just a tempo. Let me try and get a click going. That's 120 beats per minute and see if that well maybe you know what at 110 it kind of works a little better that doesn't work well let me try some melodies so i think what you do is you experiment with all of them and if you're looking for what to start with first there are no rules as uh daniel correct say in our uh documentary um and then the answer to the second question which is about diegetic music which if you don't know what that means it's the music that whether or not the characters in the film can hear it. So like an underscore is something that the audience watching the film can hear. But if someone turns on the radio or if there's a party and music's playing at the party, like that's music that the characters can hear. And that's a whole different process. And that answer is a really simple answer. That's the one, one is not complicated at all. The composers have nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing. It's done completely separately first by the, director suggesting often to the music supervisor. So Sandra Bullock and Harry Connick are standing in the kitchen and she reaches over in the scene and 
turns the radio on and they pause for a minute to listen. Well, that's something you would read in a script as a music supervisor and come to the director to say, are they listening to country music? Are they listening to hip hop? Are they listening to classical? And the director often will say, I think it's got to be a country song because they're in Texas and that's what's on the radio is some kind of Nash Vegas hit of the day. And then the music supervisor says, we can't afford that. So it's some kind of combination of what's in the budget for diegetic music, what's appropriate to the story, unless it's scripted, which is a whole other process, which is scary when you're reading a script before you make a film and it says, Michael Jackson's thriller. I was just going to ask about plays that. plays while they say, wow, I love this song. And the girl says, yeah, thriller really changed my life. And the boy says, oh, you know, this part where Michael Jackson sings thriller, then the director looks at the script and the producer looks at the script and the studio looks at the script and says, uh, we can't afford thriller. So the entire scene has to change. The dialogue changes. That happens very often because the screenwriter's just trying to make the movie seem as cool as possible and that song would work but often i can't tell you how many u2 songs have been replaced with no name bands because we couldn't afford a u2 massive song yeah. on the radio at that moment and they change the dialogue they just say i love this song <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you got to keep it generic and i'm sure there's a lot of moments where it's just like pop song playing versus you know if they decide to do the dance the famous dance of the particular song or sing the lyrics then all of a sudden you have to license that song otherwise the scene has to be reshot so you kind of put yourself in a yep. hole there yeah it's it's a beast i mean that and there's so much of that in film more and more i mean when did that st- it was like the 70s when that started happening right well certainly soundtracks in the 70s evolved from being simply an afterthought or maybe there's a song in a movie next to a big orchestral score in the 70s moving into the 80s suddenly soundtracks became big business saturday night fever sells 20 million albums you know and then you get into the early 80s with big chill where they're using motown music both as scores which is kind of score and source you kind of hear it coming from a record player but it also plays over a big scene so it almost functions like score but of course in the kitchen scene in big chill when somebody starts playing a temptations hit and they all dance and remember and then records were sold uh that really changed the whole soundtrack game but Source music is a big deal in movies, and to come full circle, Anna, to your question, the composer stays as far away from this conversation as he or she can because they have got a lot on their plate. Although, although, can I add something? Oh, composer Carol. I don't think it's entirely true because, for example, Star Wars. Let's talk about Cantina, Cantina Band. Correct. That's source music, and John Williams wrote th- wrote that. So I think it really depends um, on the director and like how they want to approach source music and the definition of it um, that's being used in the film. Carol has an enormously important point here, which is an asterisk to the entire area. 
she's right about cantina music. Also, for example, in Titanic, there's a band on the deck playing music as people walk past. Is that source music? Is that score? Is that diegetic? I can tell you as someone who had to put all that together, we had to go find out what music they played on the Titanic and where are the original books and how many musicians were in that famous band that played as the boat went down. So that wasn't a kind of random, let's just get a music supervisor to figure out, you know, some hip hop on the deck yeah, of the no, that, Titanic. Yeah. So sometimes the composer does have to create source music if it's a part of the score. But for example, James Horner did not, of course, do any of that scoring for the Titanic band. We had a wonderful British expert on period music named John Altman find the White Star Lines sheet music, which had been preserved, wow. and play exactly what they played, which the last song was Nearer My God to Thee. And the gentleman says, it's been an honor to perform with you, sirs. <laughs> so in short, in long. Yeah, very uh, long. There, there are many examples, but I think overall, the, the first answer was kind of the general scope of, of what your question was. But there are cases where the composer does have to, to jump in, especially if they're able, you know, if it's the type of music that maybe that maybe they're capable of writing the music and then they don't have to go outside and get something for it. But if they can write it original, I'm sure the composer would prefer to have more original music in the score as much as possible. Right. Yeah. But uh, also if it starts to conflict with the real job, number one, which is scoring the film. Yeah. License a piece into that moment and moving on. Ellen and Anna, thank you so much for those questions. If you have questions for us, send them over to Score the Mailbox. It's scorethemailbox at epicleft.com, E-P-I-C-L-E-F-F.com. And uh, if you're brave enough, like Ellen and Anna, record yourself asking the question, and we'll try and get to it right here on the show. All right, I think it's time to take a break, and then when we come back, can't wait to jump into this conversation with Emmy and Grammy-nominated composer Max Richter. Stick around. We'll be right back. Blockbuster, the winner of Adweek's Creative Podcast of the Year, returns. Film is a hobby, not a career. I know, Dad. James Cameron. James Cameron. A movie for your ears. James Cameron. What, me? No, 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 no. This isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? About the world's most ambitious filmmaker. It has to be perfect. Just say, I'm the king of the world. What? Why would I yell that? Blockbuster. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, score fans. It's Kenny. We are stoked to be back for season three, and we couldn't have done it without your support. Be sure to connect with us on social media for the latest guest announcements. 
video clips, industry news, and more. You can find us on all the social platforms. Twitter is at ScoreThePodcast, Instagram at ScoreMovie, and Facebook at ScoreMovie, or you can just search Score, a film music documentary. Also, please remember to click subscribe on your podcast app. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a short review. It helps more people discover the show. All right, enough business. Let's get back to it. Hi, this is Danny Elfman, and you're listening to Score, the podcast. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. Really excited about our guest today. Uh, been listening to a lot of uh, this composer's music lately, and um, it's it's so unique and so great. And he has a new album out as well that we're going to talk about. Max Richter joining the show from the UK. Another UK guest on the this international season of Score the Podcast. How you doing, Max? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, really well. Max is truly international because uh, German born. UK, I don't know if bred or lived, but Max, we were talking just before we started. I wanted to ask you a true rim shot of a question. Okay. So I hope, I hope you, uh, there's a great story behind it. I was watching one of the videos of your interviews, it was, which are fabulous online, by the way. I learned so much. There's a poster in your studio of Corbusier. Right. And he is, I have a great attachment to him as an architect. It is so random. Very few people know who that is. Right. I'm just wondering why you have that poster. Well, um, I love uh, sort of brutalist uh, concrete architecture, but also um, Corbusier. I've got sort of two connections to Corbusier, actually. Uh, one is that one of my favorite sort of modernist composers, Zanakis, was actually trained as an architect and worked with Corbusier in the 60s. Fabulous. Um, and made some amazing work with him. And then, even more um, strangely, uh, my wife's grandfather also worked for Corbusier in Paris, right post, just sort of post-war. So we have two connections to Corbusier. <laughs> That's just fantastic. And for you score listeners, this is probably comes into the category of too much information or information you don't need. But Corbusier was a French-Swiss yeah. French architect in the 50s, 60s. And um, it's interesting you say brutalist because I watched you talk about the lament. Oh, really? Okay. And um, For Taboo. For Taboo. Okay. Yeah. The score for Taboo. Mm -hmm. And you showed brilliantly a Bach piece and Purcell, I believe, if I remember yeah. correctly, showing descending bass lines. Mm -hmm. And then you used that word, brutalist. You said, my approach is a bit brutalist. Um, actually, before I ask that, the other part of that fabulous video is you then go on very casually to play some Beatles. Right. And play L Lucy in the Sky. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this guy is the complete composer. <laughs> but tell me how brutalist which is not often applied to music how did what does that mean to you that it's brutalist well i mean i guess in in architectural terms you're talking about really strong sculptural abstract forms being turned into buildings you know um formerly 
you had houses that looked kind of like houses. Uh, and then people like Corbusier come along and they make houses that look like works of sculpture. Uh, and yeah, it's a really creative and sort of freewheeling and free thinking iconoclastic sort of style. Um, and I guess in relation to taboo, uh, everything in taboo is turned up to 11 all the time. <laughs> it's really an opera, that show. Um, you know, all the sort of departments are just going crazy. And the music is <laughs> kind of going crazy too. Um, and I wanted to work with kind of traditional forms, but really blow them up. Um, so everything is really supercharged. Um, and the laments in Taboo are kind of, they, like the orchestra is really, it's almost like as much heavy metal as you can get out of a string orchestra, those laments in, in Taboo. So, yeah, um, uh, I mean, the story is, you know, it's like really overblown and crazy. And so the music is trying to sort of occupy a similar kind of register. Max, some of our listeners are composers and musicians, but some are just fans and may not mm. know what what you mean by a lament. Can yeah. you explain in in layman's terms what how you use that and why that has an effect on a listener or a viewer? Yeah, well, the lament uh, baseline is just a falling baseline. Um, it, it's it, it's a it's a word which was coined to describe you know hundreds of thousands of compositions over centuries which have got falling bass lines the bass line just falls um, you hear it in all kinds of renaissance music classical music, romantic music pop music, so much pop music and rock and roll so um, yeah it's a falling bass line it, it's an interesting thing because it has a sort of metaphorical effect on us I think um, you know, the bass line starts in a certain place and then it falls away, each note lower than the last. Um, and I think it, it kind of speaks to us of finality, death. It also is a kind of image of gravity, you know, things descending. Uh, and it seems to have this emotional power on us. Um, so, yeah, composers have been doing that. I mean, you mentioned Purcell and Bach and you know, everybody. Basically. John Lennon. John Lennon. Um, uh, actually, Sting. I mean, has a lot. There are a lot of police songs that I always loved. That yeah. had That baseline. Did Tom Hardy know that you were exploring these uh, metaphoric musical lines, or did he just say, "I like it. I don't like it." To your cues. He's very. Uh, Tom is very um, instinctive. You know, he's just, he sort of just goes with his, with his guts on, on stuff. So he's not really, he's not really interested how you get there. He just, he just <laughs> wants you to get there, you know? <laughs> I think you described a lot of your music um, using some of the descriptions of the lament. First of all, there's a lot of lament in the poetic in incarnation of the word kind of sad sweet songs in your music mm. and your music's tremendously emotional and often about finality yeah and um and even death and it makes me you know each composer has a sort of uh 
you can feel that there's a certain attraction to bigger themes. I mean, your attraction to big themes is amazing because it's the real stuff. It made me wonder, is there an attraction to discussing death in your music? Well, um, the thing that makes me want to make a piece at all is wanting to solve a question or explore a question or an idea or a story. And in exploring it, try to understand it. That's, in a way, I think, a natural part of creativity. The kinds of stories I'm interested in are, are the big stories. Um, the, you know, life, death, what does it mean? Why are we here? Why do we do what we do? What is the world we've made? What is the world we would like to make? Uh, all of that. Um, and they are, I guess, you might say serious topics. Um, the kinds of films I've done over the years have reflected that, I guess, that, that sort of position, that, that, that sense of uh, what I'd like to be involved with creatively. Um, and the solo projects are, are really much the same. They're, they all, um, you know, they're explorations into these sorts of questions. Yeah. And it's a very instinctive thing for me. It's just, it's just the sort of material I like to be working with. Filmmakers, if you're listening, maybe you just want to walk away for a moment from this question. Have you ever been approached by a filmmaker, Max, to do a movie that you read the script or understood what it was about and said, this is not my zone. It's it's frivolous, you know, it's um, it's light lightweight because that can happen to a composer. It's just not a good match. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't say I get offered what things you know frivolous things uh particularly but I, I obviously i get offered a lot of things i i i'm just for some reason i'm not interested in doing um hmm. i take uh, the ones i do are you know a really small percentage of the ones i'm offered um just because i i sort of feel like i have to fall in love with the project you know in order to because Actually, writing a score is not that easy. <laughs> and if you're going to spend news, <laughs> if you're going to spend time on it, you know, I mean, it's it's it takes a lot of you know passion and commitment and time and energy, and you have to love that thing, you know, you have to. Do you th do you consider yourself like if someone asks what you do, are you a classical music? Are you an artist? Are you a an artist that scores films? Are you a film composer that has an artist career? Like, how do you classify yourself? Cause you have so mm. many projects going on all the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I, I think of, um, the kind of main body of my work as being the solo records. Um, mm. obviously I do a lot of collaborative things. Um, I've written, you know, ballets and operas and installation and, and movies and TV shows. And I see those as collaborative projects. And I'm really, I really enjoy that, actually. I really enjoy the, um, the collective puzzle solving, the conversational, the kind of process of inquiry involved in collaborative work. I really enjoy that. Um, so, yeah, I don't really know. Um, Again, you know, I'm really just doing things I fall in love with, 
<laughs> and I love that. Did you set out to be, I mean, this is so silly, but I think a lot of our listeners and personally, I'm curious because it's a unique approach. So many people, particularly now, I'm going to be a film composer. That's my destination as opposed to I'm a musician. I mean, you have a great quote that I heard and wrote down. You said, I'm a composer, so I think in music. Hmm. Yeah. And that's truly an artist's point of view. And I wondered, you set out to be a composer and whatever came next, ballet, opera, film, hmm. or was film always the destination? Not at all. No. Um, my work in film is completely accidental. Hmm. Um, I was writing concert music. I was working as a, you know, as a performing pianist. I did some various collaborations with sort of electronic artists and I was writing my own music. Um, and after I'd made two or three albums, people started to license them here and there uh, into movies. And then uh, directors started to ask me to write scores. Um, the first of which was uh, Ari Folman, Waltz with Bashir, uh, which, you know, I mean, it's a masterpiece of filmmaking, uh, extraordinary movie. And uh, we had fun, you know. It was a really a fun process. Ari is a really bright, thoughtful guy. And um, it was a fun thing to do. It's always interesting to me when a director goes after a composer that's never scored something before. Yeah, well, Ari wrote, wrote me a... He wrote, just basically sort of wrote me an email and just said, Hello, I'm Ari Folman. Um, I've just been holed up in this shack on the beach listening to the Blue Notebooks on repeat for like a week or something. And I've written this film doing that. So now you have to score the film. And, you know, here's the <laughs> Now you have script. to. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's, it's a masterpiece, that film. Um, it's extraordinary and unique and you know, powerful and important and about the big things, about the big stories. So, uh, was, was your answer yes right away? Well, I, you, cause, I, I cause was that's a different of, world to jump I, into. Um, it, no, I, I felt I felt excited about it because you know I love cinema, and this was a great piece of cinema. I didn't really at that point think any more of it really than it, it wasn't like I'm becoming a film composer it's just and now I'm composing music for a film did you have issues with like how do I sync my music to the picture and all the things that film composers agonize over well I had no idea how to do it at all <laughs> no no idea at all and I actually still I'm glad to say I still have no idea how you're supposed to do it um, because I didn't go to you know, I didn't train in that way. You know, I did a academic music training and trained to become a, a composer. I, film scoring was not anything to do with that. So um, I, I'm, I'm sort of feel quite pleased, really, and, and, and lucky that I've never really been taught how you should do it um, because I've just sort of found my own way. I'm curious about your background because there are some pieces, if you listen to Max Richter, Max Richter you say, Oh, this this guy's definitely classical composer. And then there are other pieces where you think, oh, this is definitely the electronic guy. Mm -hmm. But 
where what was your interest growing up? Were you totally classical and then you discovered electronics or did you did you start with electronics? Kind of can you walk us through how yeah. you uh developed your style? Yeah, I had a very kind of mixed uh beginning really. Um so I started out a classical music, you know, piano lessons, all of that stuff when I was at school. Um and then I a couple of things happened. The first thing that happened is I heard on a TV show um, someone had used they'd used a piece of Kraftwerk on this TV show, uh, Autobahn. And I heard that opening of Autobahn with the bass line and the filter opening up on that, and it was like being struck by lightning. I had never experienced wow. a moment like that, and it was like there's my life before hearing that and my life after hearing that. And I just, you know, I just had to find out what this thing was and how to get my hands on one. And, you know, this is me at the age 12, basically, 12, 13. Uh, I did find out what it was. It was a synthesizer and they cost as much as a house. So, <laughs> so that's bad. Um, so I, you know, I got bags of components and schematics and started building these things in my bedroom with a soldering iron because that was the only way. And uh, yeah, that was, that was it for me with electronics. Um, next thing that happened was a year or two later, so 13, 14, something like that, the uh, milkman who delivered the milk to our house in the mornings, uh, in the afternoons, he would come and once a week get his, get his bill paid. And he would hear me practicing my Mozart, uh, you know, in Beethoven sonatas and things. And he, he took me on as a project. And he started delivering experimental music with the milk. That's so amazing. So cool. So I was hearing all these, um, you know, a lot of uh, New York downtown music. So kind of minimal school, you know, early flip glass, these kinds of things. At a time when they just weren't, it wasn't known in the UK. So I heard this stuff. Um, and that pointed me into a different idea of what new music was, contemporary music was. Because at that time, I was a kid of 13. I thought new music was Stravinsky, you know, so it was hmm. just a completely different kind of a picture. So then I went to university, uh, studied academic music, so Renaissance polyphony, all of that good stuff, um, which was just so brilliant to do. Um, hmm. And then uh, went to the Academy in London and then a postgraduate study in Italy with, with uh, Luciano Berrio. Uh, which was extraordinary. So a very kind of mixed trajectory, really. Um, but, yeah. Much like your music. I mean, it's it's mixed, depending on which album you're listening to or even which, which track sometimes. Max, would you, for our listeners' sake, uh, give us a very thumbnail introduction to Luciano, to Berrio and his music, because... yeah. It, it's fabulous that you had that opportunity to actually know him and study with him, but sure. I don't think he's as well known as he should be. Yeah. So Berio is one of the sort of small handful of, of composers who really shaped the music of the middle of the 20th century to post-war era, really. Um, there's Stockhausen, there's Boulez, there's Berio, then there's the Polish school, Penderecki, la, 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 la. Um, and in America, Elliot Carter and people who came from that direction. 
So Berio is a real sort of modernist titan, really. He his music is part of the modernist tradition, but um, unlike the music of Boulez, which is a kind of erasing of all the music that went before, Berio's music is all about music history. It's got a really omnivorous approach to culture and music history generally. So um, there's a couple of masterpieces, really big pieces like Symphonia. Uh, Symphonia quotes hundreds of pre-existing works and mashes them up into this extraordinary sort of tapestry of associations. Um, there's music in there from the Renaissance, there's the Beatles and everything in between. Um, it is, it's an incredible piece. And I was really lucky that um, a couple of years ago, my partner and I, Yulia, had the chance to program a weekend uh, at the Barbican in London. And we, we actually included a performance of Symphonia. Uh, so it was it was a really uh, nice experience to uh, put that on. How wonderful. Is that what inspired you in some ways to take on Vivaldi and, <laughs> and yeah. reinvent it? I, I well, really am curious about that. It's, it's such a traditional piece, and yet you turned it a little bit inside out. Where did that come from? Well, you know, it's funny. A few people have said to me, oh, it's because you studied with Berio. It's obvious, you know, this idea yeah. of intertextuality and recontextualizing work and examining it that way. And I, I, you know, I never made that connection when I, when I did Recomposed. Recomposed comes from a different place for me. And that is, it's more personal. Um, when I was a kid, I fell in love with the original, like we all do. Uh, it's, I mean, it's We're talking about Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which is a, you know, it's a masterpiece, a really sure. radical and yeah. incredible piece. And yet, you know, we hear that as a jingle on commercials, on TV, all the time. And it kind of drove me crazy. And I, I, I grew to hate this piece that I'd fallen in <laughs> love with as a kid. So for me, Recomposed is kind of a salvage operation. It's me trying to rediscover my original love of this material by taking Vivaldi's landscape and making a kind of off-road trip through it to see if I could discover new things, things I hadn't thought about with that material. And yeah, so I just kind of wrote through this material and made this, um, it's almost like an analog remix. It's like a paper remix of Vivaldi's uh, material. Very hip hop. As we move forward here, after you did Waltz with Bashir, was there people knocking at the door saying, Max has to score my next film, has to score my next show? Or was there a break or a period there where you kind of were like, oh, that was fun. I'm going to get back to my artist career. How did, when did the momentum start picking up that like now you're on people's lists to, to work in film and TV? Um, yeah, much later. I mean, Waltz with Bashir came along and, uh, you know, people loved the movie. Um, I think it won some awards. It too, won, so. uh, yeah, it won a, uh, Maybe something like that. It was Oscar nominated. We didn't win the Oscar. Mm -hmm. Um, It won a few things, yeah. Um, And some people heard the music. And, yeah, that was it, really, you know. It was like, "Hmm, okay, so that was good. Um, (laughs) Nothing really happened after that for a few years. I carried on doing my records. Um, Some 
some people license things here and there. Uh, Stranger Than Fiction was an early license, a couple of other things. Um, Nothing really happened, honestly, until um, the the license into Shutter Island, uh, which was Mm. a few years later, um, I think, yeah. Is that on the nature of daylight? Yeah, on the nature of daylight, exactly. Yeah. I read a comment, uh, I was listening to it, and um, under one of the uh, sites that had on the nature of daylight, someone posted, I I need this to be played at my funeral, and if it's no one agrees with that, I'm just not going to die. They were so insistent. But... um, Boy, the comments, uh, listen, score fans, you want to see rapturous enjoyment of a composer. Read any comment under one of Max's posts. They say they are so adoring and understandably of the emotion in the music. I mean, I remember one of the comments was, I'm sitting on the subway listening to Max and weeping and have to cover up the fact that I'm crying so much right now while I'm on the subway because yeah. the music is so beautiful. Mm. I understand that. it's uh, The music is beautiful. I mean, that piece on the nature of daylight, it's in Stranger Than Fiction, Shutter Island, Disconnect, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, yep. one of my favorite documentaries. Mm. And, uh, I mean, several Arrival, more. right? Yeah. Yeah, Face arrival. of an Angel, mm-hmm. The Innocent. Mm-hmm. On Arrival, you had a chance to work with Johansson? No. Well, what, what happened with Arrival is that Johan was scoring it, uh, which I knew about, obviously. And then um, they just called me up and said, can we license on the nature of daylight for the beginning and ending of the film? And I was like, mm-hmm. uh, okay. So I... I just called up Johan and, and um, f- sort of got his take on that. <laughs> and he, he said that they basically had tempted that beginning and end of the film and cut round it. And they were just, you know, they were obsessed with this piece. And um, please, would I let them use it? <laughs> because they were torturing it. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I think it, it, he was very happy for that to, for that to happen. I wonder if there was a conversation where he came back to the director, Dennis, and said, uh, I can't do it. I just can't match this. You know, I've taken three shots at it. I mean, because that often happens. They of course. They have a temp, a well, temp piece, and the composer can't be as great as the temp. Well, I think especially in, you know, filmmakers' minds, you know, the, the material just sort of condenses around a particular structure and a particular, you know, it's very difficult for them to get past it sometimes. And that's not to blame them. I mean, it's completely natural. You know, you get used to something, you're constructing a world around it. Um, you know, it's going to be tough to tough to get, get past it. That's, that's understandable. Plus there's an emotional language in any temp piece of music, yeah. good or bad, but you have to, try and divorce that from the picture you've been used to Mm, i think on that note well while we're uh, while we're still on this while we're still on that subject though um hilder gunadoter of mm. course was uh, a collaborator with johan and you've worked with hilder i haven't i know hilder um but i've we've never worked together no any plans to i don't know um 
I was chatting with her on a bizarrely on a radio show the other day. Um, no, Hilda was fantastic. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Who knows? That would be great. I think there's, there's a number of connections there, not only through arrival and Johan, but, uh, she lives in Berlin. She does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, we look forward to finding <laughs> out what can happen. Kenny, should we just take a minute? I was thinking. Yeah, well, we're going to take a break. And then we have a bunch of stuff to talk about uh, on the other side, including uh, your new album, Voices. And I also want to ask you about sleep, because this is like one of the most interesting musical ideas I've ever heard of. And um, I'm so glad to finally be able to ask you about it personally. Okay. Uh, much more to come with Max Richter. We'll be right back. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast, and The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, SCORE fans. I'm just wondering if you have a favorite question you've been dying to ask us. You know, you could send it to us in an email. You send it to scorethemailbox at epiclef.com. That's E-P-I-C-L-E-F-F. Come up with a good question. Kenny or I will do our best to answer it, and if we don't know the answer, we may make one up, you know, just to keep the program rolling. Better yet, you could even record the question yourself and attach that to an email. Include your name and your location, and you just might make an appearance on this season of Score the Podcast. This is Andy Grush. This is Taylor Stewart. And we are the Newton Brothers. And you are listening to Score the Podcast. Let's go back to the show. Let's do it. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio, here with Max Richter. Uh, You had an album, I think it was 2015, Sleep. Mm -hmm. And for those who haven't heard of this idea this is an album that uh, if you look it up on apple music it's eight and a half hours long and um i was watching a piece that was done with you when you were doing some concerts about it and you mentioned that you don't even go to sleep to music but you wrote an eight and a half hour piece to help to help people sleep to put people to sleep and you did concerts where people had beds and went to sleep yeah this is such a cool idea and I would just love to hear the, the genesis of this idea, especially since you don't even use music to sleep to. Yeah, I can't, I can't sleep with music on um, because if there's music on, then I'm working. Right? So that's it. You know, I can't, my brain is sort of in analytical mode and then I can't sleep. But uh, that is the only time I can't sleep. I'm very, very lucky with sleeping. Um, I'm mm. always just, that's it. You know, if I go to bed, I'm asleep. Um, and I, I really value 
that, you know, not only for rest, but also, you know, sleep is where we clarify ideas, think we have, you know, things come together for us. It's all kinds of, has all sorts of functions really valuable. Um, when I decided to make uh, the piece, it really came out of the instinct that this is 2015, you know, the internet moved on to handheld devices around about that time, 2014, 2013, 2015. Um, and I had this sensation that we were being kind of data saturated and that it was becoming more and more difficult to stop. And actually, you know, that stopping, that pause, that creative boredom is incredibly important to us human beings. You know, our bodies don't know it's the 21st century. They think it's 100,000 years ago. They haven't, you know, we haven't caught up yet. So we're under a lot of psychological pressure. So I wanted to make this creative inquiry into sleeping um, and offer it as a kind of a pause button to our busy lives. So, yeah, the record is uh, eight and a half hours of continuous music, all of it written down on a piece of paper. Um, and <laughs> we perform it. Uh, we've performed, I, I guess, about 30 overnight shows all around the world. Um, and the audience come, and we set up a few hundred beds, and they go to sleep or not, or listen, and we, we perform through the night. Were you nervous about the first time you played that, just sitting there for eight and a half hours playing? Yeah. Was, that just seems like a, a feat in itself. I was terrified. Yeah. Um, I mean, performing sleep is really hard. It's really hard. I mean, you know, when I sit down at the piano at the beginning of the night, there's more than 200 pages of piano music for me to play through. Um, it's, it's extreme sports kind of performance. Um, so... You know, it takes a couple of days beforehand to sort of get into the right time zone and you have to have the right food and all this stuff. So I work it out so that when I go on stage, I've literally just had my breakfast. It's like morning. And uh, so I sort of get jet lagged, you know, the right amount. Um, yeah. And then we play through the night. Uh, and it's it's actually a really lovely experience. Um there's something about, you know, people actually relaxing together and trusting one another enough to go to sleep, you know, with a few hundred strangers in a strange place that makes this wonderful feeling of community, this wonderful feeling that we're going on this journey together. And when we're playing, we feel like we're accompanying something. You know, we're on a stage, we're performing music, but really what we're doing is we're accompanying this community sleeping through the night and it's a really lovely experience i'm picturing like if i had to do this i'd have to wear that like stadium helmet with the two straws with coffee like going because you, your hands are busy you can't eat you can't really drink yeah unless you wrote certain pieces to to play one-handed at a certain point i or get something like that. i get a few i get two little breaks um because there's a string ensemble there's a, a soprano and a bunch of electronics i'm working um, and I get a f I get a couple of little breaks on the piano, so I can just run and get some food, get some coffee, you know, do a bit of stretching or whatever it is. Yeah. I feel like if I went to that show, though, I mean, if you're a Max Richter fan, it'd be like saying, "Hey, come come see your favorite artist," and then sleep during the concert. I I would have trouble sleeping, I think, because I would just want to watch you playing. Some people do. Some people treat it like a gig, 
and they're like sitting at the front just watching, which is fine. You know, it's fine. Uh, most people, they sleep a bit, they listen a bit, they walk around a bit. You know, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very democratic sort of uh, space, that performance. I, it's, I really enjoy that about it. It's just so unique, and it also flies in the face of uh, the idea that, you know, you're stimulating the audience. Mm. I mean, I love the idea that it, it came to you because of the digital onslaught in yeah. our lives. I, yeah. I don't know what it's like not to be a digiholic anymore. Yeah. And so um, I just wonder if you look out at the audience at one point and you can see that everyone's asleep and you look at the band on stage and go, you know, we it's just kind of like, it's a beautiful thing. A it is actually. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody just nips out for a minute and then comes back and nobody knows they were sleeping. So can we expect the 80 LP box set at some point of sleep? Or? Well, we, we are, we are sort of thinking about doing a box but it's kind of a little, I don't know. I mean, people sort of are asking for it. So we might do a, a vinyl set, but, it, it, you know, I wouldn't want to be listening to it on vinyl, even though I, I love vinyl records, but you'd have to keep getting up, wouldn't you, like every 25 minutes. <laughs> slightly <laughs> yeah, defeats all night the long. purpose. You're slowly falling asleep. You're like, oh, you got to flip it. Yeah. got to get up really quick. Yeah. yeah. It'd be tough to fall asleep to that. Max, the new record, Voices, yeah. Um it's also an unconventional approach to recording. I mean, not mm. unlike sleep. Mm. Uh, it's, I know that you, you mentioned that you were interested in the Eleanor Roosevelt UN declaration. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've, I've not only listened to the music, I've seen the video, which I believe you, you actually live with and make children with. That's, the videographer. That's right. Which is very, very fortunate because a good director is hard to find. Exactly. Mm. Um, but uh, I must tell you that I truly respect and admire your commitment to issues that transcend. I'm a composer. Can I get more famous? Can I get more money? I'm sure those are issues that are always important, but these are political issues you've tackled. And issues yeah. of human rights you've tackled. Yeah. Um, has that always been an interest of yours? Yeah, it has. Um, uh, I just feel like creativity is, uh, first of all, it's, it's a really important thing in our culture. I think we're, we are creative creatures. We're, a, we're about stories. We're about finding meaning. And creativity is a wonderful way to do that. And it's a wonderful way to explore the questions that we all face every day. Um, you know, the, the albums I've made from right from the beginning have been about sort of big questions. You know, the Blue Notebooks is it's all about the situation leading up to the Iraq War. And then you have Infra, mm. which is to do with 7-7. And uh, Sleep, I would regard as a in a way, a political piece. It's, I think of sleep as protest music in a way against mm. that sort of digital saturation. Uh, voices obviously is, is in that tradition too. And, and actually most of the film projects I've done have kind of social themes um, or are about those big questions. I mean, it, it just, that makes sense to me. Um, I can't, obviously can't speak for other people. Uh, people write music for all kinds of reasons. 
Um, but for me, it, that just makes sense. Um, yeah. Can you tell our audience a little bit about Voices and yeah. where what inspired it? And uh, just, you know, it just came out, I think, uh, yeah. a week or so ago. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Voices is, um, it comes out of a, a moment, really, a, a, around 2010, when um, there were all these revelations about what had been going on in Guantanamo and the black sites and, you know, all that stuff, extraordinary rendition, all this kinds of stuff. So I felt at that time that we'd lost our way, um, that something had gone missing in our civilization. And hmm. um, I, I, set, I wrote this little piece, Mercy, uh, as a kind of way for me to think about that myself, as a way to figure it out. And then uh, Yulia and I, so Yulia, my partner, is a filmmaker, who's made the videos for... Uh, um, voices and is actually working on a full-length film full voices um so we started talking about making this bigger piece and then over the 10 years since then i've been working on this piece on and off and trying to find the right shape for it and i felt really that you know that 10 years has been really formative for us as a as a culture as a sort of global society you know we've had the rise of authoritarianism and populist right-wing politics and environmental pressures and pressures of technology you know all of these kinds of things um and you know things have started to feel a little hopeless Mm. so really what i wanted to do with voices is to make a piece which is about our present moment but to make a piece which is hopeful and thinking about how I could do that, I decided to put the declaration into the center of the piece. Um, this text, uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, written in '48, right after the Second World War, as a kind of blueprint for a better world, um, you know, a more just, more humane world. And it's a, it's a document which hides in plain sight in a way. You know, we all know about it, but we don't really know, you know, we don't have a, like an experience of it, a live experience of it. So I wanted to make a piece uh, which would kind of present this text in a very direct way and just kind of shine a light on it for people and provide a space to think about these things. Um, yeah, that's Voices. It's- incredibly moving um the video that accompanies it is brilliant yeah i live with Truly. a genius <laughs> oh that's so nice i bet she says the same about you uh, i imagine there's a concert planned when the world normalizes a bit yeah we i mean we actually premiered it in february right before the lockdown here in in uh, in uh, the barbican in london mm. and uh, we had we played it there for two nights and it was a wonderful experience because it's a it's kind of a monster. It's a seventy piece band, and the orchestra is um, it's a very strange formation. It's almost all bass instruments. Um, so the idea really being that I wanted to use this metaphor of trying to make something hopeful out of sort of dark things. Um, so you said it created a kind of luminosity. 
to use the darker instruments. That's the dream, yeah. Um, to try and so so to try and just use, um, yeah, it's like alchemy, right? It's the sort of making taking base metal and turning it into gold. That was the ambition, you know, to try and make something uplifting out of this dark stuff. And it's available on on vinyl, CD, digital, and I did see that you were doing some signed copies on your website is that still available for people if they were they're interested uh, yeah i don't know we signed i signed a lot um yeah i signed a lot <laughs> i think i think the answer is yes if i never played the piano again because i signed all those cds you, you hurt your hand <laughs> that's right uh you know you mentioned something earlier which i find interesting and and particularly for film work we asked you about the sync issues for your first film, and hmm. did you get that right? I I love the music. Of course, everyone loves the music from Leftovers. Right. You know, I loved the show. Mm-hmm. Wasn't really aware that when I was, and full disclosure, in a yoga class, right. that the teacher, every time we got to the end of it, mm-hmm. you know, when you lie in the corpse pose, mm-hmm. She played, I just went crazy. What? I know this music. I know this music. Mm. Of course, it was the theme from Leftovers, right. which is so haunting and beautiful. And it's funny, even mentioning Vivaldi, it's very, it it falls forward in a way that's both surprising and predictable. I can't describe it, but I would lie there analyzing the way that the chords moved. Are you talking about the main the main title of season one? The main title theme of Leftovers. Yeah. It's just thrillingly gorgeous <laughs> it's and sad. <laughs> but you said that when you were hired to score it, you wrote a collection of themes. Am mm. I correct in remembering that? Yeah, sure. And mm. that then that you then adapted them. It's a very European way to score films. It's not what Americans call QE. Mm-hmm. You know, you do it right to picture. Is that the way you prefer to score films, or is it just for leftovers that you approach with a number of themes? Yeah, I, I um, yes, I, I, I always try to just write material at the beginning because mm. at the, you know, off picture, um, because that part of the process is really about trying to discover the properties of that world, the properties of that project, the kinds of things which feel like they live there, the kinds of things which feel inevitable to it, like mm-hmm. they were always there, you know, that sort of stuff. And that's, yeah. um, it's a kind of voyage into a space you don't know yet. So I'm, I wouldn't, I don't try to um, kind of censor myself at all in that process. I'm just looking for um, musical yeah, discoveries at that point. Can I ask, I mean, just really getting behind the curtain in the creative process, did you see a piece of film for Leftovers? Were you aware what the theme was and walking on, you know, Berwick Street in London or, you know, just wandering around a cool neighborhood and thinking, oh, I hear it, I hear it. What was the process for coming up with that magnificent theme? Do you remember? Um, for the main title, the yeah. main title. Um, theme. I wanted to write something 
which I, I knew they were going to do the sort of quasi-Sistine Chapel sort of animation. And so I wanted music which was... which had a kind of immense gravitas, you know. Mm. It's a big story. The Leftovers is a big story. And it's mythic. You know, so I wanted those sorts of qualities. But I also wanted the music to be... Um, to operate on two levels. So it's... it's In a way, it does what you think it's going to do. But it, the way the harmony works, every single harmonic change is also wrong at the same time as being right. So it sort of goes, oh, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. It's sort of like, what? Yes. <laughs> so it sort, of, it sort of subverts you all the time. That's so, right. It, I said... It, it, feels predictable and yet surprising yeah so so really the, the that that was sort of a metaphor and i was trying to sort of encapsulate the riddle that's at the heart of that show in in that main theme very very good for shavasana <laughs> yoga final pose. okay well i'm glad to hear it just good to know that it's it's a very applicable piece of music for the end of an hour of yoga. <laughs> uh, we do want to touch on Ad Astra yeah. before we go. Um, one of my favorite scores to listen to while I'm working. And, uh, you know, there's so many of these big space movies that come out, and I'm always interested to see what takes a composer has on doing a space film, you know, Gravity, mm -hmm. Space Odyssey, 2001, uh, First Man are some mm -hmm. notable ones of the past. Um, when you were were tasked with this project, what was in my in your mind for what space is like? What music in space is like? What what was your inspiration there? Wow. Um, yeah. I, I I mean, you know, when you get a, the visuals on a project like that, you know, when a composer sees visuals like that, your brain just blows up with ideas. Hmm. Um, so there are a lot of different things. Um, so the film plays obviously a human drama, which is one thing. And then there's all of that cosmic stuff and those cosmic questions, which are sort of beyond us, which is another thing. So there are two kinds of music in, in Ad Astra really, which reflect that. The first is, I guess, instrumental orchestral music, which is Brad's psychological trajectory. Hmm. Um, and then there's the other kind of music, which is the electronic music. And that, that comes from two places. It comes from um, the synthesizers, um, which is mostly Moog synthesizers from the early six, uh, late 60s. Um, I think of those as, in a way, the synthesizer equivalent to the Saturn V rocket. Um, hmm. So that just made sense to me. So it should be that that synthesizer, that the voice of that synthesizer. And then the other thing is that I realized that Brad's character, his journey, which is from Earth to Neptune, is a journey we've made. We made that journey in the with the Voyager probes, mm -hmm. uh, which is still going actually. Um, so what's beautiful is that the Voyager probes sent back data every few seconds all the way. And that data is at the University of Iowa. It's um, electromagnetic radiation measurements 
So I got in touch with the University of Iowa and said, hey, can we have your data? Um, and they, they were very kindly offered, uh, offered us this sort of extraordinary treasure trove of data. So what we did is we built computer models, instruments from the data so that uh, when Brad is flying past Jupiter, the music you're hearing is made from data captured at Jupiter. And that's insane. And, <laughs> and throughout the whole film, when you hear electronic music, it's a sight in a way, almost like a sight recording. Um, so that was good. Oh, that's amazing. That's mind blowing. Yeah, that was, did, I mean, it was, and you just discovered this while researching. How did you find that out? Well, I knew about the Voyager probes because uh, I was a tiny kid, you know, when they were going off. And I remember just being really inspired by them. And, you know, they have the golden record, which is, you know, it's got all these amazing recordings from the earth. And it's, you know, they think it, it's probably the thing that humanity has made, which will last longest. I actually have a copy of the set list right for some reason on my night table you know nice. it's like johnny johnny be good by chuck berry that's why it's amazing things Buck and it's it's just yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i'm always so fascinated with the, with the lengths that composers go to do something that the audience would never know without you telling us on a podcast like that's so much time you spent doing that and i i, I can't help but ask why you would spend time doing that well, it's very, a thing like that is super inspiring. It's incredibly inspiring, you know, because, I mean, what we're doing is you're trying to fire up people's imaginations, right? And that, that process is, a, is something which is contagious, I think. You know, if you get passionate and excited about something, you communicate that, right? Um, and, you know, just for me, you know, knowing that this little noise I'm hearing is from Jupiter or Saturn or whatever it is. And I mean, that's just, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. So um, it almost should be on the screen. Mm -hmm. It should say, by the way, the music you're listening to is this. And that would just like bring more because that that should be out there. I'm so glad we're having this conversation because <laughs> that that is like so fascinating. And I that that should be at the forefront of it should be written on the front of the like album. right under the main title of the movie right? <laughs> or as the credits roll at the yeah. end yeah yeah right music, you know yeah. music generated by actual voyager data mm. um oh, that is but i so kind of love it because it actually you're right it does embed in the music it and does, therefore yeah. in the film yeah uh and the image a kind of authenticity in some way of what we're listening to there's something even if it's a secret yeah i agree yeah um, it's like playing an instrument that's actually from an era that you wouldn't ordinarily think you know mm -hmm. you're using synthesizers from the 60s well you might use a you know a lute yeah. on a renaissance score be and nobody's gonna say you stand up in the middle of a movie theater and go hey i think is that a like a 17th century loot. These eras match up on the instruments. Yeah. Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sit down. Exactly. <laughs> Max, before we let you go for this, from this fabulous, really. Wait, wait. Is great. Ad Astra coming out on vinyl, by the way? Oh, I, interesting. I, I, I have no idea. I can't. I, I have no idea. Oh, please. It's, it's just nice coming to... out as, 
it's coming out just as data. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. You're gonna have, <laughs> yeah. You have to decode it yourself. <laughs> Max, I wondered if you can share with us anything exciting on the horizon as your, as your personal Voyager goes deeper into the universe? Um, there, there's more things coming. Um, my, I mean, obviously, like everyone, my diary has been shuffled by the pandemic. Um, but uh, there's more music coming from Voices later this year mm. and there is uh, i'm working on a new ballet uh for Covent garden with again with wayne mcgregor and, and margaret atwood in this case um so that would wow. be great um yeah lots of things and more movies that's so great it's so what an interesting interesting career you're having which is actually all one can ever ask for just yeah an interesting life. Yeah, no, I'm you know. very lucky. It's been so great, Max. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Absolutely. Learned so much today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. A reminder to our listeners, you can follow us a number of ways. Instagram, Score Movie. Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary. Send us your questions to score the mailbox at epicleft.com. We'll try and answer those on the show. And stick around after the end of the show here today we're going to play you a little clip from spitfire audio so you can hear some of the different sounds to elevate your music robert take it away hey max what a treat we're just lucky to have you on the show i think the world is lucky to have you creating music i really really am both impressed and inspired by your your work and voices voices is out now go okay. listen to it buy it download it and uh, go find some data of your own. That's all I can tell you That's to it. write music from. Okay. So, Max Richter. We'll see you next thanks, week. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hey, SCORE listeners. We are so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer, the Bernard Herrmann Estate, and many others to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. Yeah, and as an exclusive to score listeners, Spitfire Audio is offering 20% off your first order, and it's good on over 50 of their libraries. Again, it's exclusive to you, so make sure to use that promo code while it lasts. Just go to SpitfireAudio.com and enter it in. It's SCORE2020, lowercase score 2020, so they know we sent you. Here's a little clip now from a queue built by the London Contemporary Orchestra Strings Package. Check it out.
Again, go to spitfireaudio.com and use that promo code SCORE2020, save 20%. Season 3 is coming to a close here soon, so you want to use that code while it still lasts. I think that's it for us. Robert, should we see him next week? We will see you next week. Where? On SCORE2020.